0: This podcast is made possible with support from radio engineering. Radio is the home of reamping and the latest additions to the reamp family help streamline your studio setup and expand your creative options. Even further, bring your full collection of amps and effects into play using any pre-recorded track and experiment with new sounds at your leisure, whether you're new to the reamp process or a seasoned studio engineer. Radio has a tool to help you easily incorporate reamping into
1: your workflow. Learn more at radioeng.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. September 2023 marked the 30th anniversary of the now classic Morphine album, Cure for Pain. It was the band's sophomore release and recorded during the transition from original drummer Jerome Dupree to Billy Conway, with Jerome playing on the bulk of the album's songs and Billy playing on the title track, Cure for Pain and Let's Take a Trip Together. To mark the occasion of the album's anniversary, Jeff Stanfield caught up with the band's surviving members. Dana Colley and Jerome Dupree, alongside Mastering Engineer and Archivist Pete Weiss. Enjoy! We'll come on a little closer,
2: let me see your face. Yeah, come on a little closer by the front of the stage. I see, come on a little closer, I got something to say. Yeah, come on a little closer, I want to see your face you see I met a devil, in point of point
0: of. Met devil well thanks guys uh <laughs> and pleasure to have you all here to chat and uh I was glad to see your name pop up Pete I was like it's got to be the same
3: Pete Gotta <laughs> you can't plan these things <clears throat> you know no it just uh it occurred to me that we're talking to you and op and no better person to get into this conversation than Pete, who has been pretty uh, much responsible for digitizing or, or transferring all of the uh, all of the stuff we're, we've been working with. And uh, Pete has transferred and mastered and has done ma- and done an amazing job getting the stuff out of the vaults literally and onto the platter. So he he deserves all of the credit in my opinion.
2: Oh my God. Thanks, well there's Victor. some
3: credit here and there. Drum did some drumming. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well it's funny because thinking about Cure for Pain for me, and it's it's real bittersweet because when it came out I was already gone and I sort of knew what I was going to be looking at in terms of any kind of success from the band, but it was I couldn't listen to it for a long time and it was, you know, it's just an awkward time for me in terms of it actually coming out on on uh, RICO, you know, and watching those early TV performances and all that stuff. You know, it wasn't miserable, it was just weird.
0: <laughs> when you made this record, did you have any sense of, of what it would become?
4: Not for me. I, I was theoretically making a demo tape. Uh, Mark had sort of said, oh, you know, we've got this interest from Ryko, and they they want to have us do some recording. So he wasn't even talking about it like it was a record. I mean, I suppose in the back of my mind, I kind of knew, but it wasn't like, you know, there we were as a band and we went in to record this record. It was, for me, I was sort of doing him a favor and it was a little bit begrudgingly, I remember sort of having an attitude in the studio, like, I don't want to talk about this stuff. I'm just going to play. You know, I remember getting very little direction that I heeded. I'm very proud of it now, but at the time it was awkward. Let's put it that way. So I didn't, even after, you know, even listening, like when he sent me a mix of it, I don't remember thinking like, oh yeah, this is going to be good. I just, I think I was just still going through the pain of having to leave. You know, it was as I always said, I didn't want to leave, but I couldn't stay.
0: Yeah, I mean, for those if you're comfortable telling the story, I mean, can do you uh for people that don't know that backstory on you mind well, just sharing it?
4: I mean, I, I you know Dana has said that he and Mark formed the band and you know, if they did, then their first order of business was to get a hold of me. So uh, but yeah, I was there at the beginning of playing as a trio and um, went through you know the early gigs and recording good and and then I had the whole period where I was sick and wasn't playing and that was traumatic um, and Dan- uh, Dana was very helpful. Mark couldn't really deal with that at all. He was like, "Why are you not playing?" You know, he couldn't he couldn't understand it. So that was sort of the seeds of things not being good. And then, you know, I came back and we released good and that got really good response. um, And started gigging again, but slowly, but surely Mark and I just weren't getting along. We did a tour of the West coast um, in the fall of 92, if memory serves. And, uh, um, some of the gigs were great. We had a great gig in San Francisco, and I remember Santa Cruz being really good. Um, but at the, on the other hand, we, he was using the SVT for the first time, so things were getting louder. And I was just kind of like, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, when the band started, it was really quiet. Um, so, anyway, long story short, we weren't getting along. So, got back to Boston, and in pretty short order, by the end of the year, I had left. And then it was soon after that that he called me up and said, you know, we're going to do this recording and would you do it? And I was sort of thinking that Billy or, you know, whoever was going to be the new drummer should do it. And Mark to his credit kind of, you know, talked me into it or whatever. Or like I said, I agreed to do him the favor. And in hindsight, I'm really glad I did. But uh, at the time it was, it was awkward.
0: Yeah. Um, How about for you, Dana?
4: Uh,
3: you know, for me, it was uh, it. Was, there really wasn't a lot of expectation in terms of what we were, yeah, or what the we're, what we're going to achieve if we were to achieve anything. It was mostly just following a path as hard and as dedicated as you could possibly be. I was completely focused. We all were very focused on just making music uh, with this band that was working. We we're finally getting some gigs and some attention, and. You know, it was seemed like um, it was it was a lot of fun just to kind of see where it was going to take us. We got out to the West Coast. um, We toured up, you know, had a couple of gigs out there and had become pretty, um, you know, honed as an act, as as a band at that by the time we rolled into the studio at the fort. So, but, you know, I remember our last gig in San... And I don't know where it was in California, somewhere, San Francisco or someplace. And I I remember being in a dressing room with Mark uh, and uh, Jerome. And for the first time, kind of realizing that there was, you know, Jerome wasn't happy. And it looked like he wasn't going to stick around. I don't know how much... I, How aware I was of how he was... What he was going through at the prior to that. But... Um. I became aware of it quite, you know, sharply at that moment. And, uh, you know, it, it, I'm always kind of a, try to mediate and try to, you know, smooth, you know, the, in the Spinal Tap uh, movie, you know, they're talking about the one guy's fire, one guy's ice, and Derek Smalls goes, well, I'm just lukewarm water. <laughs> so, you know, I, the, which sort of the path I try to maintain between the uh, both billy i'm sorry jerome and and mark i obviously wanted to see them stay together and wanted Jerome to stay in the band but he you Jerome was going through some stuff not only with mark but you're, you had some tendonitis in his arms it wasn't easy or fun for you to play it was painful for you to play so you were in a lot of pain either you know with your arms or or, or just the sound overall sound and volume that was increasing as a as in Mark I think rightly so realized that if we were to play on bigger stages that we needed to paint with a broader brush and that meant being you know having a, a more forceful stage uh, sound uh and the in his switch to I think the B12 bass cab you can help me out with that one Pete what was that little box we
2: had in high and dry with the, with uh, the, with the tubes at the flip top you know what yeah it was say? an mpeg uh, portaflex of b15
3: b15 he uh, that was kind of his amp of choice prior for a long time and it was you know beautiful bass tone but really didn't have the kind of uh you know wave pattern that the svt produced and so that when that thing got going you know it was loud and there were times just jumping ahead there were times on festival stages where it would be so loud that my reed and my saxophone the wave of the bass would just compete with the wave of the of the of the reed and just completely press it against the mouthpiece and pin it Im- immovable and the sound would stop and it was like this i could feel the bass wave just come rumbling across the stage and just like right into my mouth and just like closing the reed off um, but you know, you're standing in front of a base cabinet, you don't feel it because the wave is long and you don't, you don't really get the same sense of the volume when you're standing in front of it, as you do when you're in front or off to the side, these things I found out and learned along the way. Um, but you know, at the time <clears throat> I was all just, let's keep, let's go, let's keep the, you know, whatever opportunity presents us, presents itself, let's follow it. And it was unfortunate that Jerome and Mark couldn't come to terms and 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 that was the way it was going to be you know um it uh wasn't much you couldn't change anyone's mind at that point it was either we find another drummer or or we this whole thing just we stopped doing it and nor mark nor i were, were, were prepared to stop we wanted to push it and i remember coming back into the coming back to cambridge going into the studio at fort and jerome agreeing grudgingly to to join us because we had you know formulated this stage uh you know performance and tightness as a band and he said well at least before you go come on in and record with the the, the energy and the the set that we that we've you know we've honed here Jerome came in and he'll tell you that uh, he thought he was basically getting sounds he didn't know that a lot of the most of the tracks on that album were actually Jerome kind of thinking he was just doing a first take to kind of warm up and get drum sounds. But Jerome is as good, as good as he is. He he does he doesn't play anything but you know top notch no matter what he's doing. So those first tracks, those first passes, were what you hear on the record, and they're amazing. And I'm sure if Jerome you're like the great painter who would like to go into the museum and and, and touch up some of his masterpieces. Uh, I'm sure you hear stuff that you'd rather, you know, you wished you had done differently, but, um, you know, it stands the test of time as being, in many ways, the the drum parts in that, on this, in this record is like a Rosetta Stone and for a lot of drummers. And, uh, you know, you can hear, you can hear the aggression, you can hear the aggro, you can hear there's a little bit of anger in his, in his playing, um, you know, and I think that may have served the music in some way, Um, but we really just went in and, and, and laid it down really quickly and because we had been playing them live for so long.
0: Did this at Fort Apache for the most part with Paul Colderley.
3: Yeah, two-inch tape, you know, on the uh, the Tascam, the Neve board, and um, you know, bunch of great gear, you know, and you know, and you know, with that, with well, on two-inch tape, you've got you know drums. How many tracks do they take up? You know, bass, vocal, sax. You, you know, you can really leave a lot of room for overdubs and just in terms of you know, burning on tape, uh, the, there's, there's just, there's not a lot of competition on those tracks for, for, for the sound. So they're, they're really, they really got a real fat printing, I think, you know, vibe. you can, I don't know if that's my imagination or not, but
0: definitely something to that. I mean, I, I, did you guys do this on 24 track or 16 track tape? Yeah. 24. Yeah. 24.
3: The, The fat stuff.
0: Um, what was the setup like in the room? Was this just primarily uh, tracked live?
3: Uh, for the most part, tracked live, I believe. You know, we had some separation. I was in a booth separated so that my, my uh, mistakes and squawks and malfunctions didn't get all over the drum tracks. So, I, you know, there was separation uh in that way but we we played live um did a guide vocal and then we we came back in and overdub saxophone overdub vocals overdub other little things to kind of beef it up we did a lot of unison stuff with uh the saxophone just to kind of give it even a bigger bigger feel and we you know we really narrowed down on on solos paul and i worked really hard on you know punching in um bar to bar and many of those solos were created like you know, four or five notes at a time, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, and it, it's certainly doesn't feel that way. I mean, it feels like a live band performance um, and it feels like there's a ton of
3: energy coming off the floor and in interaction with the band. So. That comes from the basic track. You know, if you get got a basic take that is that contains all of that, what you mentioned, then uh, that's, you're, you're good to go. Everything else is just going to be, you know, uh just cake what's the expression icing
4: icing thank you icing on the cake. gravy <laughs>
3: gravy icing and gravy <laughs> Combining.
4: sweet gravy yeah
3: the uh
0: you know there's some stuff on the a version of the record that came out in 2022 with, with some sort of alternate takes you pointing are <laughs> you pointing at pete the uh I I put that together, basically. Nice. I love that stuff, especially when I know a record really well.
4: That Bueno was actually done earlier. Um, We had been in the BCN's Battle of the Bands, the Rock and Roll Rumble, and had made it to the semifinals, so we'd gotten some studio time, and we went in one afternoon and cut, I think there's a version of uh, All Wrong, Oh, yeah, and, it's all wrong. Yeah, or Maybe it's just all wrong, but I think we did both of those. And so those are like sort of prototype versions. It was before we'd done the West Coast gig. It was earlier in the year. Um, so those songs and arrangements were still kind of developing. And there wasn't much time. We you know, did everything in an afternoon and then had a gig that night. So um, those are kind of like prototypes, if you will. Um, at least that's what I remember. I haven't really listened to it a lot. Maybe Pete knows. Well, and, I, I
2: had, um, I mean, Dana, you, you gave me unprecedented uh, access to the, the vaults. And um, I found, you know, a bunch of dates that the, the dates of the dats fell into the right time frame. And uh, so I had those transferred to uh, to hard drive and um went through them all. There was a lot of material and I took all sorts of notes about what was musically compelling, but, um, the thing like I wasn't there, so I actually didn't really know the story about what these tracks were. Um, and there wasn't a ton of information other than sometimes the date. Um, but what I was able to do as a fan is listen to what sounded to me, like kind of a narrative that almost spelled out the history of you guys developing your sound. And I found some super early stuff that just it's almost like the moment of the morphine sound. You're like there's a couple of rehearsal tapes. I think one made it onto the the bonus tracks. Um, anyway, uh thanks for letting me do that and i it's, it wasn't really you know I gotta say it wasn't really done in a scholarly way, but it was done in a in a um you know from a from a big fan's perspective, and you know what I felt was told a musical story.
0: I always wonder about remastering a record you know you got an original record that was the original statement i mean and it is like you were you were dana you were talking about the drum tracks like a, you know oh I w- you know you were a painter wishing they could go in and sort of make tweaks to a, an original i mean how do you approach that pete i mean you got you have a statement and a and a release a piece of piece of
2: work that certainly stood on its own um uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the we we're talking mostly about cure for pain, right? Because um, I yeah, I kind of oversaw the, the the remastering of all of, of all of them at this point. But the cure for pain, let me think. Um, well, my my approach is like do no harm, you know, and and allow the the, the listeners and the fans who uh, are familiar with and revere the the record, um, let them en- enjoy it the way they remember, but perhaps. A little nicer sounding you know what I mean like not but not you know not uh not really changed
3: you're mastering this primarily f- with the intent of it going to vinyl which is a whole other you yeah. know process right you have to take all kinds of different considerations into the into how it's going to be translated right
2: that's true that's true the, the initial job was to do it for these special limited edition vinyl uh releases by uh runout Groove um which is uh under the umbrella of warner brothers but um the deluxe edition of um of cure for pain and the deluxe edition of good both um came out on streaming services so, so people can actually listen to those um and there were two different masters for that Pete. i did yeah um yeah the you know without getting into a crazy amount of detail but the the you know um Preparing a master for for vinyl, if there's certain things like it can't be too loud. It can't have a lot of limiting. The, uh, the, the, the low end needs to be centered in the stereo spectrum. Um, there can't be too much low end. There can't be too much high end. So there's all these little tricks that you have to kind of take into consideration to make it sound actually good and make it um, and allow the lacquer cutting guy. In this case, so it's uh, Jeff Powell um, to cut a good, clean, you know loud compelling master
3: he's yeah, the man right jeff Paul's the man
2: he did all the all the morphine yeah. um lionel actually uh well the two that just came out uh, like swimming and the night were were cut by jj golden who also did a great job but uh, but jeff did the first three yeah
0: you know talk a little bit about that process especially in light of you know mark not being involved with the project and um what does that feel like emotionally to sit and be listening to this music with mark gone
3: you know uh that's kind of the i guess that's the thread that that kind of uh keeps us uh connected really you know when being in a band with with someone and making music with someone um you know if it were if it's another let's say it was a friend of yours who you didn't have that experience with how do you remember them where do you go to remember them you know, maybe there's a photograph, or maybe there's an event that you had done together, or some memory that is lodged that brings you back to feeling connected to that person that you've lost. Uh, for me, you know, this isn't this isn't a connection that I've that is, you know, I've I've relied on in terms of my relationship with Mark to kind of uh, just to keep his spirit and his is friendship alive inside of me the music has been a way to uh you know really connect with that in a real visceral way and it's on and it, it it's almost uh, you know it's almost like a spiritual thing where you the the soul you know if you believe in that sort of thing goes on into the post goes, goes somewhere and you know music is uh so connected to that spiritual soulful center in, in the human being. Um, it's it's I guess it's not really unusual to think that it would also serve as a conduit to um, to maintaining a relationship after life and just been ap- I've been open to that and, and I feel it feels familiar, I guess, you know.
0: How about for you, Pete? I mean that somebody that was so central to this music, not being there, certainly has an impact and must must tilt some responsibility on your shoulders
2: no it 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 felt super heavy uh i took it very seriously and uh, you know i gotta say i didn't really know mark i met him a few times right um but um and jerome i'm not sure i met you until kind of later right like maybe the mid 2000s or something Uh, dana like my my big connection here dana and i go back to the i don't know early 90s or something
3: yeah zippa zippa days
2: you would you would pop in and and do some some sax overdubs on various projects and we had a rapport from the beginning and just you know stayed close since then and so it was dana that reached out and asked asked if i could help um that's just a little little just a background there but i with that in mind i took it very seriously and at times i felt kind of intimidated you know the sort of presence of 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 mark who you know by by all accounts was a pretty intense guy and a pretty demanding guy um and i felt uh a pretty heavy responsibility to um you know do my my best to uh honor what he may have been comfortable with if that makes sense sure well he wouldn't have been so he, he, <laughs> <sorry>. there's no one <laughs> nice try really? There were moments where I kind of yeah. thought, "Oh, yeah, fuck it, yeah, this that he's he's not going to like any of this." There's but. a
3: lot of outtakes, you know, a lot of those hidden tracks or those um, pre-release, unreleased tracks, pre previously unreleased tracks. He probably wouldn't have wouldn't have uh, allowed to escape his the contents of uh, his his uh, abode, but. Um, You know archives you know we we have we see things differently we see we see the value in all of those intimate moments and and the in the real kind of creative energy that they present you know and mark was always thinking always recording always creating and and all of course he wanted to keep his best stuff for to get to be released properly in the proper way and didn't really want to leak a lot of stuff because he was in always a process of reworking and trying to Get it to its best form but um, you know unfortunately this is what we have to work with and uh it it really illustrates um the person in in a very intimate but truthful and respectful way i think
2: well and i i think good i'm i'm, I'm glad because i d- i did i thought of all of that while we were doing this and um i don't think any any of this any of the bonus material that's out does anything to to tarnish any sort of legacy. Um, you know, I think as a, as a fan and friend and ally, um, I, I see it as it, you know, something that augments the catalog, you know, in a, in a very interesting way. Hopefully.
0: Yeah. I mean, as an outsider listening to it and just a fan of the band and, and this record, especially all that stuff is sort of just, it's it's a look behind the scenes or like the, the bonus, you know, the extras on a movie or something. I still watch the movie and appreciate it for what it is. Um, it certainly doesn't tarnish. It's just a little bit more, you know, makes you feel a little closer or have a little bit, you know, especially with limited material out there, it's always fun to hear things in development and a little extra look, you know, it feels like you actually get to know the the, the person or the band a little more. So I, I always appreciate that sort of stuff and never really feel like it taints the the offering as it was intended. When you guys go back and listen to Cure for Pain, are there certain songs on this that really, you know, are there little, this particular stories behind uh, that, that, that those sessions bring to mind that you care to share?
4: Well, for me, Dana sort of made it sound like it was more than one, but, um, Buena was the one track that I remember Um we'd gone in the night before we were going to start to get sounds. And then once we were up and running, Paul said, why don't you play something? We can see how it's tracking. And we played Buena. And as far as I know, that's the version that's on the record. Oh, um,
3: okay. See, I had it wrong. I thought I thought that you did your whole, the whole session was like just one no, black. Uh,
4: Buena is the only one that I really clearly remember being in that, like, I just didn't care. And a lot of the little flourishes on the hi-hat and things that I did, I was just totally in the zone of performing and not worried about the the fact that the tape was running. I mean, I knew it was running, but it wasn't like an official take, if you will. Um, and so the fact that that's as good as it is, uh, is just down to, you know, luck of the draw, I guess, or just... You being pissed off.
3: Huh? You being pissed off.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember feeling mad like when I was playing. I guess it was just an intensity. I always tried to improvise. I always tried to do things a little differently. I had an approach to the songs, but I didn't have a set part. So, in terms of buena, there are those couple little hi-hat things that are just I was just on it, and I remember we got done and I probably wasn't even aware that I'd done them, but I remember Paul going, "Well, you got that one," you know. And I think he was. Yeah, Paul again. was
3: always very sneaky with like that. He, you know, he could he would if you didn't pay attention, you know, he'd he'd get your recording when you didn't realize you were recording, and it, in knowing that, that's when you're probably at your loosest and your most, you know, because you're not thinking about the red light. In those days, going into a studio. You know, the clock was running, the time was running, the tape was expensive. And when you recorded, you know, it it just, it was automatic. You just went like this, you know, we were I was new to the whole process. I didn't really know what uh, was my first real kind of working in a studio. And you really kind of would do that, you know, um, I think now with, you know, digital and Pro Tools, you tape isn't an issue. You you can do it in your own home. You know, you, you can demystify the process over time. We You know, you learn to do that. But in those days, it was like, okay, red light's on. Better, you know, better better be good. You know, this better be it. And it usually was or didn't feel like it was. Uh, and you always felt like the, the next one was going to be better. The next one was going to be better. And uh, in many cases the it wasn't in many cases it was that first one that you know the q division uh bell curve which uh <laughs> I just saw recently which uh kind of exactly. kind of points to a, you know take how many takes you do uh in the beginning you have great groove uh but some mistakes and at the end you have no groove but it's been played perfectly you know <laughs> so it's like that where do you get it in that spectrum
4: well, I remember we didn't do a lot of takes of anything. I mean, Mark was never like that. We didn't, I'd certainly been in that situation before of trying to record something and having a very set performance that I was going to do. And on every take, having to just remember all these nuances that maybe were relatively new. You know, you change the arrangement when you went to record it. This was way more like a live performance. Um yeah. You know, it was just like, yeah, we're going to play it a couple of times and see what happens. I was never, I never felt like I was under any kind of pressure. And maybe the, my sort of attitude of like, this is what you're going to get was what added to that. You know, my attitude from the drum set was just that I'm going to play it like a live gig. You know, I never thought like, oh, this is one for the ages. It was just like, you know, let me, let me get this done and get out of here. So, you know, I don't remember I remember very little direction. There was one song that I I think it was uh Candy where I wanted to sort of copy the rhythm of the sax, the the da, 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 you know, I wanted to sort of do that and Mark didn't like it, so I just kind of said okay, fine, but beyond that I was playing things very much like I did live. Um so there wasn't that there wasn't that feeling of like oh it was the fifteenth take. I don't think we played anything more than two or three times. I I could be wrong. The track sheets or Paul Coldry would have a better idea of that. But I don't remember doing a lot of takes of anything. How,
0: were there a ton of edits on this
3: stuff? Paul might have might have taken out a razor here and there, but it wasn't you know it was rare because everybody was like. Mm-hmm. You know but he was great at it but you know there might be like a couple of bars he would have he might pull out of a uh, you know sure section or something that just to just to tighten it up a bit but he didn't do it very often and when he did you know you knew it because it was a big process yeah
0: i mean this record's got a ton of songs on it it's only 37 minutes long so it is tight like the songs are tight
3: like I said, we we went we've been on on the road playing these songs, so we had the we had them down, and we I think the the takes are pretty much the way we played them live. You know, it wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of thinking about you know how to arrange it because it was it was pretty much said and done when we walked in there. Sure, I wish my memory was better. I you know I I wish I'd been taking notes at the time. It just didn't didn't really, you know, you it just it's so much in it at the time that you know a young person just. It's all kind of new. Everything is new. You don't anticipate it being this, you know, record up for the ages. It just, you know, I do recall though hearing the first mixes. I had, I had a cassette, and I have told the story before. But I was a house painter for many years, and was working in a house in uh, Brookline, and a beautiful Victorian. You know, skimming some walls with some some plaster. Or rolling out something and i had my had the cassette mixes in a on a cassette and i had it in our boom box all spattered with paint and everything And I would just pop it in listen to it while i was painting and for the first time in my life i felt like wow okay i it, i was able to kind of remove myself from it. it usually when i would hear something i was working on i'd get this sick feeling inside <laughs> like oh that that just sounds like ugh, that, that's my horrible sound you know It's like when you hear your voice for the first time and you're like oh my god that's what i sound like that's kind of what um most of every recording i had ever been a part of sounded and felt like to me it was just like oh i just it sounds like i've just i hadn't quite reached you know what it was it was that i was trying to get to and this was the first time that i that I, i could step back and not have and it didn't have that feeling and it was like wow I think I could hear hear this on the radio that was my first impression I think you know BCN might or or even ERS might even play this on the radio it it sounds that good to me right now and that was the that was the kind of satisfying moment for sure and uh so yeah I think I knew at that point that we had we had made a great recording what was going to happen to it how it was going to be received hadn't even crossed my mind
0: uh any final thoughts Before I let you gentlemen get on with your day.
3: Well, we'd like to obviously remember our dear departed friends, Mark Sandman and Billy Conway, who couldn't be with us today and couldn't, uh, couldn't, you know, reap the benefits of of their mastery and celebrate this with us. Um, Who are much loved and remembered. Um, And to all our fans and, uh, and, and lovers of music and uh, lovers of gear and, how it all happens? So we, we're indebted to you.
4: As stressed as the recording might've been in certain ways for me, I'm incredibly proud of what I did and what's happened to it since. I mean, if people know me as a drummer at all, it's pretty much because of the record. I mean, there are a couple of other things that Joe Morris and either orchestra and whatever, but if I have any stature as a drummer uh, at all, it's, pretty much because of cure for pain. So I you know and I'm just always honored when people enjoy it not that oh I'm such a badass. it's just that I'm getting to give back what so many other musicians gave to me. I think of it as completing the circle and I' you know I'm still on that fan side of things so I understand it from both sides and it's it's an honor.
1: Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.